I think there's a huge amount of luck involved. There's very few people in e-commerce that are actually selling a unique product. I never tried to make Udi a brand. Without the courage, you won't get the action. And without the action, you just won't get the information. If someone's walked the path for you, there's no point you trying to be a pioneer. Pioneers get arrows in their asses. Are you not taking your eyes off what you should be looking at in terms of like your e-commerce route? I remember I would have panic attacks before any time that I have to go up on stage. Lydia was doing 160 million or something that year, and I was spending like four hours being CEO. Your trajectory inside four or five years dramatically turned around your life. There must be more to it than just hard work, the right product. Are we actually gonna be the next Peter Alexander? Can we be this brand that we've worked so hard to do? If I had to walk my path again for the last four years, like I do the exact same thing, like I would rather be broke. And we are back, and today we have a man that has absolutely smashed it on all levels since we first spoke two and a half years ago. I was checking, I was checking before this, Davey, and mate, we 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 were the first ever podcast you were on back in the day. And mate, what you've what you've done and achieved yep. since then has been extraordinary. But let me break it down for those of you who don't know who Davey is right now. Davey is the founder of the Udi. He's he's he, and a Shark Tank investor as well in, in Australia, and he was a millionaire by twenty four. And by 28, he had done over 500 million in sales. And mate, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be back. Let's see if we can do a better job than, than the first one. I was definitely a little bit rough on the first one. I, I remember watching, listening to it back and it was my first ever podcast. And I said so many ums and ahs. Uh, so I, I think that I might do a couple today, but hopefully less than that first one. This is a great, this is a great thing. Cause obviously like since that episode as well, a lot's changed in my life and I think I've got a lot better at, and more refined at speaking. And I know that it's something that you've invested in yourself. I believe that obviously you, with your YouTube growth and obviously your front of camera stuff. And now obviously you've been on TV that you invested, you've invested quite heavily in obviously growing your personal brand. But one of those elements that mm. you put in was, was getting a speech coach, wasn't it? And someone who's teaching you how to speak and, and present i think public speaking and storytelling is such an underrated craft and i was definitely when i was younger the biggest introvert i absolutely hated public speaking i remember i would have panic attacks before any time that i have to go up on stage so for me to rebuild that skill took a lot longer than say me having to build my skills of videography because we all have natural inclinations, genetic predispositions for certain things. And I think based on my upbringing and I I just really wasn't into it. Um, So I needed to get a hypno coach to help me with the subconscious mind so that I could break through and actually stand up without collapsing. And then I needed to get a speech coach to help me with actually like how to do a good presentation. And then I also read a ton of books like Storyworthy is one of the best books I've ever read. And I'm still terrible, but that's okay because I think you, it's something that once you learn it, you have it for life. And I, I, I've definitely gotten better, but still a long way to go. And I think the best way to do it is, you know, what we're doing right now is just practice and then listen back. You know, you need to be retrospective and, and have a look at things and, and suggest improvements to yourself. I, I realised when I listened back to myself through, 
through quite a lot of reps of doing podcasting, there was there was words that I was using sometimes sometimes the swear words that I'd use as filler words, and it's like once you pick up on your filler words, you can start to refine those out of your conversation because you don't you realize after a while you don't need those to kind of fill in the conversation. You can be articulate enough and without having to put these kind of words in. I suppose it's something you've found as well by taking out the ums, the ahs. It's easier just to pause, have that pause, and then and then speak again rather than trying to trying to rush your words. Feeling comfortable with a pause is definitely unnatural. We were definitely trained, we were trained to stop that, but it can just create emphasis. And I think, I think the main thing, the main lesson is telling stories and tr- using stories to lead in and then bring the lesson. And if you look at what YouTube actually is, you know, you look at all these heavy hitters in YouTube, Alex Amosi, Amangadzi, all of these people, you'll actually see that there's a formula that they use. They use a little hook and then they use a story and, and then they tell the lesson of the, of the story. If you're giving the lesson straight up front with the hook, it, people don't need to listen to the story anymore. So, and stories are allowing people, this is how ancestors taught lessons because it activates different parts in the brain. And I think that's what, if you want to become really, really good at public speaking, just get good at telling stories. And that's, that's all you need to do. When it comes to storytelling, obviously that, that applies to brands as well. And a brand that you've probably really emphasized telling stories through is probably, is probably Udi. How have you implemented this mm. thesis into, into a framework that works with a brand that had already grown to that level? It's a, it's an interesting one. I never tried to make Udi a brand. I was probably more on the direct response dropshipping side, which I'm sure a lot of people are more familiar with uh, because it's easier to achieve. But the product was so good that it started to tell a story. And that story was warm moments of comfort and joy. I think that it, that is now our brand and it's it's interesting a lot of people set the brand primarily and then use their marketing to create that emotional connection and reinvigorate that in people's minds. However, ours was the opposite. It was like we sold millions and millions of units and we're like, what is our actual brand? And we, it was that create moments of joy. But I think there's something interesting about the UD in that one, it's mass market, but it's also, it also has its own little story and connection with every single person in a different way. You know, it, it's a bit goofy for some people. It was a bit of a joke for others. Some of them, it's like, this is the only thing that helps me with my anxiety. And like, this is my self care routine. Um, so I think it's a malleable brand and it's a very inclusive brand. And I think uh, that that's why it's so powerful as well. Well, one of the things that I've noticed that led to a lot of success in, in recent times has obviously been licensing model and the way that you've implemented licensing with, with brands like I think Disney and, and other, other brands like that mm-hmm. that you've brought in and been able to put them on. And what I wanted you to kind of break down today is how people can use licensing in their e-commerce brands because I don't think there's a lot of podcasts and a lot of information out there on this and I think it's something you can bring a lot of value to. Yeah, of course. I just actually finished filming a YouTube on licensing my YouTube, uh, someone that helps me with that YouTube is like, this is going to get no views. And I'm like, I don't care. I just need to get this out there it's, because it's people important. keep asking me about it and nobody knows about it. You know, there's a couple of videos, but they're pretty terrible. Um, look, licensing is a great way to, if you think about it, 
if you're fishing and you're using a certain type of bait, let's say that bait is a wearable blanket bait, like just hypothetically, um, you're attracting these wearable blanket customers. Like you're trying to trying to catch those. Licensing is kind of changing the bait. So you're still attracting those wearable blanket customers, but at the same time, you're also now targeting a different customer such as Warner Brothers, Harry Potter fans. So you've got that like little Venn diagram where you can uh, uh, market to both of them. And then in the middle of that Venn diagram, there's your super audience, the audience that you're connecting with so strongly that they are willing to shop. The other thing about licensing, which is underappreciated, is there's very few people in e-commerce that are actually selling a unique product. Um, this is because people knock each other off. You know, if we look at the avocado Udi, that, that I created, there's a bunch of like knockoff, cheap knockoffs with an avocado on it. It's not exactly our avocado Udi, but to the customer, it can uh, to the non Udi branded passionate customer, it can feel very much very similar. As soon as we launch licensing, we go into this new product category, which is really exciting and it's actually really difficult to do. So you've just got all of these benefits um, that get uh, get absorbed really well by these digital platforms such as Facebook. When you launch on Facebook with these products, it's going to go straight to those audiences that love Harry Potter. Facebook knows that about you at least and it pushes you there. And what that then can do is it aligns you with those other licenses. You know, if it's, uh, I think, Supreme and DHL, did a collaboration at one point, you know, it was just like, it made DHL feel a little bit cooler than they actually are and a little bit more premium. So there's a ton of other benefits, but primarily the first one is, you know, just kind of unlocking those audiences and being able to spend, um, I guess to do licensing, you know, it's not a home run all the time and it, it, it needs to lend itself. You know, I've tried, I tried it with dog beds once and it probably would have worked, but our execution maybe just wasn't quite there. Um, and it didn't work compared to, you know, something like the Audi where the, they, you know, the human is very connected to that character. So I think, you know, it's not a hundred percent a home run, but for most products it will work. Um, and the main things to realize is that it is very, very, especially if you're using a larger, uh, a larger license like Disney or Warner Brothers, it's going to be very time consuming on your team's behalf. You need to provide forecasts at a school level, hit those forecasts. There's going to be a minimum guarantee so that you need to actually pay Disney if you, let's say you don't even launch the product, you're going to be up for that money regardless. So you need to make sure that you're hitting those MGs. Um, those MGs are based on the forecast and the category that you're on. So there's a bunch of little things, but like everything, uh, the best way to learn this stuff is to one, you know, chat to someone like me or someone that's done it before, but then just dive straight in, make sure that you're working with something small, just testing it, one license, and then uh, make the lessons from there and, and you'll you'll be able to grow. And if it's a sustainable strategy, you know, I think Peter Alexander is a perfect example of how big licensing can actually be. It can be the cornerstone of your business. So give, give me an example then of a business size that you have to be, like in terms of like revenue, sales numbers, before you can actually realistically look at licensing and afford to be able to implement it. Because like you say, there's, a, there's, minimum, there's minimum quantities required by these, by these top licenses like Disney. And also there's, there, you're up, like you say, whether you've released the product or not, once you sign the license agreement, you're up for X amount of capital up front because that's what you've agreed in the contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if 
there is, there's obviously a minimum size and that minimum size comes from, is it viable for the, is, is it lucrative for both parties? Um, if it's not lucrative for one party, that party's not going to do it. And I say that there's maybe not a size because there's different types of licensing. Whereas like, let's say you create this brand new product category. Let's say it's a patented hoodie. That's amazing. And you know that you're like that technology is incredible. Someone might want to license that technology from you, even though that you have no business. So there, there are lots of different types of licensing, music licensing, Gore-Tex. You've probably seen yeah, the gloves, shoes. Yeah. That's just a material. Like that's just a material. And, and it's, it, it, you, obviously it's a great material, but it is somewhat of a marketing, uh, marketing approach as well. So if we took like the basic e-commerce example, which I assume most people that are listening are like you just need to make sure that the sales that you can achieve for said product that you're launching is lucrative enough for the other licensing party so we've worked with some we found this really cute we're starting to create this shark hoodie and it it was nothing to do with shark tank but it was really it was really challenging to get the personality in the character for the hoodie and in our research for pin, using Pinterest and stuff like that, good designers have this research process. There was this one diagram and it was called Same Zoo Shark and it was adorable. It had a best friend of like that's a seal and it would take it everywhere and it would like kind of eat it and kind of not eat it. It would put it in a sandwich and it was just, it was just hilarious. And we just couldn't get this shark and the emotional connection to this shark out of, uh, out of our head. And what we ended up doing is, you know, we tried to design this shark to be cuter, our shark, but we're just like, we just can't. So we contacted this random designer in Korea uh, that n- nobody could even get in contact. They couldn't speak any English. And we're just like, we need to license this product. And they had no licensing set up or anything like that. And we ended up getting it across the line just because we wanted this design so badly. But the, the, the story there is that, you know, we don't need to be the Udi to get that license. We can be a very, very small brand and that's going to be lucrative to both parties. So I think the the main thing is picking niche licenses when you're only doing one to probably more than one, maybe 2 million to 10 million. Um, but again, like there's other forms of, of, of licensing as well, where you can start working with inline brands that are the exact same revenue as you, that are maybe local. Um, so don't be afraid to niche down uh, with the license. But if I was to, if, if I was to ask you what niche exactly have you seen this applied to in the most consistent manager manner? Is it is it is it for argument's sake a cl- can, can cl- are clothing brands way open to this, mm-hmm. or is it is it better in other niches? I mean, what what kind of niche? Yeah, I think clothing is a really good one because people are using it as an expression of their identity. And I think that's where licensing is important. You're trying to align with that brand. Things that are less visible uh, is often less important. You know, the other thing is the, like, appliances. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen, like, the R2-D2, like, waffle maker and those things. Those things fly off the shelf. So there's certain novelty in moments of, of joy, as well as, you know, bed sheets, those kind of things. The home niche is, is a big one. Um, so, look, I, I wouldn't try to limit, I wouldn't limit 
what niche licensing can be used for. I think that it's a, a powerful tool for most, most niches. One of the best licenses I've ever seen executed before licensing became a popular topic was the George Foreman grill. It was, it was mm. licensed across every country. I mean, George mm-hmm. Foreman made hundreds of millions out of that compared to his boxing career. Mm-hmm. And it's like, when you, when you look at like, licensing has been, been happening for decades, but I think it's just with brands like the Udi getting hold of these Disney licenses and other brands in the space, e-commerce level, doing, doing these good license deals, it's kind of making it more and more mainstream. It shows people there is a path to this. One of the places where you said that you shouldn't niche down, for argument's sake, is in the ads and the creative. So I was, I was doing a lot of research before this podcast. I wanted to throw in as much value for people as possible. And I was reading uh, your recent tweet today about how brands are, their, their, their marketing is outdated because they're niched too far down on even in their Facebook ads and stuff like that. And I really want you to just dive into that to give them some practical knowledge today on how they're doing that wrong because, you know, with so many ad accounts across so many categories that you've got now, you can see it at a bigger data level. After iOS 14.5, there was extreme signal loss. Um, the, when you're telling Facebook to do something, chances are that it's, it's going to struggle to do that anyway, such as excluding purchases from the ad account. So I'll get relatively granular, um, rather than speaking kind of broadly about this strategy because um, hopefully people, people can follow along might feel a bit dry, but I think that the Udi's structure at the moment is we use a Advantage Plus, which is basically rebranded CBO, um, Campaign Budget Optimization, which allows us to target kind of everyone. We do exclude purchases, uh, but as I said before, like it's still, you're still going to be targeting a lot of purchases within that campaign. Then we... In that campaign, this is where like 90% of our budget is. So we are introducing all of our best creatives. When you're initially setting this up, you just grab all your best post IDs, five to 10 post IDs, and just plug that in there. Then what you're going to do is obviously ramp up your budget. Maybe the first week it's a little bit soft, but eventually it's going to scale way, way better. Your creatives will do the targeting there. So you're not going to stop targeting men if you're like a a candle brand. But Facebook will be like, oh, there's a woman in this. Like I'm going to target women. Or maybe it's like, oh, it's talking about gifting. I'm going to target men. Facebook will handle that for you. You don't need to worry about that. Then where I'm seeing people fall down is two parts. First of all, they're using top of funnel, middle funnel, bottom of funnel campaigns, which at the moment is just there's no point. You're just messing, messing with everything. Then the second part is they're introducing creatives that they don't know what are working to these big budgets. And then they're wondering why all of the learning gets interrupted, everything breaks, and it just doesn't work. The way that you should introduce creatives is you have a second testing campaign. Now, this campaign is, again, targeting broad um, because you want to know how it performs with broad because that's where you're going to introduce it soon at larger budgets. Then you add three to five new creatives. So we generally batch ours. It's like UGC, like uh, UGC gifting or something like that, or it's static images promotion or something like that. And then what we'll do is we'll run that at a reasonable budget until we can feel confident that Facebook hasn't picked a winner. Then we'll grab that post ID and chuck it in the scaling campaign once we're confident with that. What that allows us to do, you know, if you go into our scaling campaigns, there's hundreds of creators. A lot of them do eventually get turned off 
because if it's just irrelevant now or it's really, really old, I don't know how necessary turning it off is. Um, but at the same time, we do do, do it for a little bit. Um, and then aside from that, you can run a catalog campaign as well. I think that that's, that's important. But that's pretty much our structure across all of our accounts. Um, we've seen better results with it. All the people that I respect in the industry, all the, the other people doing nine figures uh, are also doing something very, very similar. So, um, yeah, I recommend uh, adapting it and, and people that are teaching you otherwise are probably wrong or, or slow to, to adapt. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think you breaking it down when you're spending so much money, I mean, you get to see so much data. If, if you can't tell me exactly how the campaign could be broken down by now, I'd be, I'd be pretty worried about that, to be fair. But I think um, just on that, on that, though, there is... I don't think there's a huge, a lot of people's arguments to me with that as uh, you're spending ridiculous amounts of budget. How does this, how does this differ to me that I'm just getting started? And I don't think that much. I still think that that's the ideal structure. I think you're going to hit into fatigue problems quicker in the other structure. Um, and from first principles, it's, it's not going to work as well. So I have witnessed one or two people and whether they, just set it up wrong or too impatient where their product is so niche that it wasn't really working and they were doing such small budgets um, that, that it just wasn't really working. But at the same time, like your, your goal, that's not going to be, that's not going to change your life at all, you know, having, having such small budgets. So I think you should at least be trying to do the thing that's going to scale it as much as possible. So to, so to simplify it even further from what you've just said then, essentially what you're saying is go out to a, a, a broader broader spectrum of users with the biggest budget you can or possibly available and let Facebook do what Facebook does, which is learn for you rather than you trying to trying to pigeonhole Facebook into a certain way, which you think, which is actually lowering your conversion rate and lowering the amount of money that you make on the back end of the product sale. One of the um, other things that I really, really resonate with you on is a lot of people have been giving agencies license to look after their ads and out, they've outsourced their copy, their ads. They're giving away pixel data. I've seen you pick up on this um, quite a lot. And one of the things, one of your golden rules in life is never, ever give the agency access to the pixel and the data and the account. You're seeing this a lot. Where, where, why are people still giving away that data and, and where are you seeing it? It's worth noting that I'm only starting to see this stuff because I've started daily mentor, which is like a mentorship for seven figure plus brands. We've got 80 people. It's very limited in that we just don't want any energy vampires. That sounds like a shameless plug, but it was more so to say that these practices have been going on forever. I just didn't realize how bad they were. So now I'm getting into these ad accounts and I'm starting to talk to these people's problems. Like I had this person that uh, they we're doing fantastic, you know, million in its first year on track for 2 million. And then they've hired this agency and they have a unique product where they sell a course pretty much, but it's like a, a beauty salon kind of beauty niche course. And then what they, they, so they were, they got convinced that the best model was to rather than run straight purchase objective to their existing Shopify, which we, they were killing it with, was to use a lead generation model and then do cold calls, well, not cold calls, but calls to those leads to close them. Now, they hired an agency to do this 
and the agency's build was beautiful. Like I had to look at it. I was like, this is, this is awesome work. But the agency's targets were to get the cheapest lead possible. When you are running these lead objectives in Facebook, you get garbage leads. So the, the leads in terms of cost dropped dramatically by hiring this agency. But so by all accounts, they had no recourse. They were doing great. Um, but the cost per actual acquisition was way, way worse. So I was like, just run a purchase objective, even though you're trying to get leads that improved straight away. And then I'm like, no, you need to take all of this away and, uh, and start running, um, the ads, the accounts yourself. And it's like, oh, we don't have our ad account or pixel anymore. We, we gave it away when we hired this agency. And I'm just like that, like these people are sophisticated. They're very, very clever. They've got a great product and they were managed to convince to, to do something like that. And what that means is they are held hostage by this agency. Um, or this, and this is not this agency's like, they're not unique. It's a lot, it's rampant in the industry. And, uh, and, and, and accountability is so important in everything. You know, if, if someone can't be fired, the, the performance of that employee can go incredibly bad. Look at like all of the systems, like tenure, like with, with, uh, all of these kind of us based institutions as well. As soon as thing, as soon as there's such ridiculous security, performance will go down. And that's the truth of it. Um, and when it comes, if that then gets translated into small mum and pop businesses, uh, what's going to happen is the business is going to go out of business because they're the main lever of revenue. So I think the, the consequences are so large for these people and it's just such a shady business practice that they're pushing it onto someone that doesn't actually understand the consequences. You know, there, there needs to be some level of people being held accountable within the industry that, that says, if you give us all of your pixel and uh, business uh, manager and you decide to move on and we don't give it to you, you are literally starting from day one and you're going to lose all of these learnings. Um, but nobody talks about that. So it, it's just a bit of a shame and uh, I was just trying to raise awareness for, for a lot of the small small businesses um, out there that may consider it. I think... Um one of the things that I've noticed that has been highly beneficial in your journey from from when you from when we first spoke two and a half years ago, um, and I, th- I don't know whether it was Toby that got you to implement this or whether it was other people, but um, so, so what I believe some mentor have, must have told you about the use of mental models in your life because I've seen you implement certain mental models back in those days, but now. You you, are, you you use one that Jeff Bezos invented with type one, type two. I just kind of wanted to understand the process of why you went the route of implementing mental models in the first place and which ones you are using now that have helped you grow to the level you're at. I think mental models is, it's a funny term. I think that we're just implementing ways of thinking about things so that there are less variables when we come up to a complex problem. The main Jeff Bezos model is around actual consequentiality and irreversibility. So I was getting, I think it was the Ansoft matrix or, or uh, 
no, there was a there's a sergeant or something like that. I can't remember his name. That was the word I was talking about before. Anyway, it's inconsequentiality and versatility is basically where this this quadrant lies. Um, so if something is really reversible and highly consequential, you need to review all of the information and then decide relatively quickly. So the Jeff Bezos decision-making framework, the main thing is to determine whether it's a reversible decision um, or really consequential as well. So you've kind of got the spectrum there. If something is really low consequentiality, so really low stakes, this might be, you know, deciding something like a new marketing channel that you're going to test out, not like spending 50 grand on a big campaign or something like that, but like testing your Pinterest account. And then it's also highly reversible, which if we're talking about testing a Pinterest account, we can just turn off the account. That's what we determine as something that we would decide really, really quickly. Um, so that, that's, that's something that's been really helpful with me in the flip side, which cost me almost cost me my business, cost me my house, which is these things that are high, high stakes and irreversible, which is, you know, a one-way door rather than a two-way door where you can come back is the, you know, something like launching a new business. While it might sound reversible, you know, if you're, if you're making huge amounts of money, um, you can just close the business down. But there's a long tailwind effect of, you know, fixing the stock, fixing the accounting. Uh, it's just so many issues that come with a failed business that I probably underappreciated. And this is where I launched. I just launched way too many brands and they all took away from my key brands. You know, I had four really, really great brands and I was launching, you know, six more. And that caused me huge issues. So that is an example of something that's really important but irreversible, so therefore you need to decide it slowly and carefully. Um, on the flip side, if you've got something that is irreversible and low stakes as well, it's not that important. So just decide quickly and move on. So that's what that mental framework was. I did a bit of a video on it. Um, but yeah, look, I think, I think there's lots of different uh, mental models like inversion is a really, really good one. So like, you know, what makes a really, really, if you're like trying to, let's say design a brand new desk chair for your product, desk chair for your, uh, a product to sell rather than saying what makes the best desk, desk chair go, what makes the worst desk chair and fix those issues. Um, so that, you can kind of that. invert problems as well. What I love about the, 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 the models you've presented there is the fact of like, you know, Basically, you, what you're saying, Davey, to keep it real simple terms, is you're saying before you start the game and before you arrive at XYZ destination, just set the game up to win with some variable framework that you can work within so you know where you're going before, you get, before there's any stress or strain on the business. So, if, you know, if, if, you got, if you know the financial model, for argument's sake... Uh, before before you get there and you've planned it down the road before you get there when you start to get to x amount of volume you already know which way you're shifting because you've already planned the model it's the same with the mental model of anything i suppose yeah the best book is by shane parish and that's what i read on mental models what you said there is something that is harder than 
anticipated because you've never walked the path before. And this is why experienced business people often run circles around people that aren't experienced because they know these variables and they know the unknown unknowns um, versus you're just kind of guessing. And you can weight probabilities through firsthand experience rather than theory. That's, that's what's really important, you know, just to, I guess, be patient. But you need to actually at least hypothesize what you're trying to achieve. You can't just be at the whims of business and just make decisions and just kind of flow and make things, make sure that your business isn't making decisions for you. You're making decisions for the, for the business. Um, my other favorite mental model, now it's starting to come back to me from Shane Parrish was circle of competence. And I think this is, this is what I'm kind of talking about before. If, you know, you, it's often that you're also really overly confident about a lot of things. If you take the story about, you know, a, a businessman, he goes to a small town in Japan, spends a year of, of time in that town. After the year, compared to the first month, you know, he, he's probably thinking he knows everything he know, needs to know about the town, where to eat, what, you know, what the weather's going to be like, just all of these high level uh, things. And then compare that to someone that spent 90 years in that town and compare how competent they are within that. It's really important to not, to really truly understand your circle of competence. When I was going into building software, I was like, okay, this is out of my circle of competence. Six, six months in, I'm like, okay, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty familiar with this, getting a little bit hubris in like, okay, this is easy. I just do this, do this, do this. It's just really humbling to, to bring yourself back and compare yourself to someone that is a true master of the craft. And what that will then do is one, it will stop you making overly confident decisions, which cause issues for you. But then two, it'll also accelerate your learning and put you in a humble place so that you can absorb information. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of mental models out there that can help. One thing as well that um, is I've, I, you know, through following your journey that I've seen you doing that at the time, I perhaps couldn't understand it wholeheartedly, but maybe you can explain it for me. It's like, I watched you purchase a bricks and mortar brand. Um, and I, I, I presume, my presumption would be you were just trying to scale the online side and you saw an opportunity there. And then obviously I've seen you go into software as well. And to, to me on the outside looking in as a, as a lot smaller entrepreneur in terms of revenue numbers than, than you are down the track, I'm like looking at it thinking, are you not taking your eyes off what you should be looking at in terms of like your e-commerce route? Or, so how, how, did, how did that all work out for you and how did you balance that? There's extreme truth in that it's taking my eyes off the ball uh, and I'm doing that now with mentorship as well. But I have ADHD. I can't sit still. <laughs> I, I, would, I would rather be broke than have to do the... Ex if I had to walk my path again for the next, last four years like and do the exact same thing, like I would rather be broke. I, it's just my brain, I just want to do new things. I want to do new experiences. It's not about money anymore for me. It's about happiness and, and enjoying waking up every single day. So, you know, learning the acquisition process was, was probably my main goal there. Um, learning the new, a new aggressive, a new really difficult field up against, you know, 
private equity and venture capital money uh, and just trying to bootstrap things. Like they're all just fun challenges for me. And it's probably less about making money um, than, than not. If I wanted to make a lot of money, there's, yeah, I would probably just launch a new e-commerce brand. Um, but I'm really enjoying even the investing side of e-commerce brands now at the moment through Shark Tank. So, you know, that that's another kind of challenge. And that's the same with anyone with ADHD. You know, you need to follow the nice nice framework, which is novel, interesting, creative, or an emergency. You know, if it's not those four things, it's going to be boring for you. And you can make, you know, things novel, novel by just changing how you're approaching it, you know, changing how you schedule meetings, changing how you, uh, you know, are taking these meetings. Maybe you go to a cafe today um, and it's a much grandiose, it's much grander scale um, and playing with your livelihood and in your savings and stuff like that. But at the same time, I enjoy those challenges and I, you know, I'll never give up with those, those kind of things. I may make a ton of mistakes and people may ridicule those mistakes or question those mistakes. Um, but at the same time, I know that I'll come out on top with those decisions as well. Quick one for you guys. This podcast is sponsored by contentremover.com. As many of you are probably aware, I set up contentremoval.com in 2017 to help people remove all forms of online content. And I've looked after some of the biggest names and brands in the world doing it. And I would love to help you if you're struggling. If you're struggling to remove images, videos, search results, fake accounts, or anything online, go to contentremover.com and we'll help you today. If there was one business that you find the most enjoyable right now, which one would it be? Whatever I'm focused on is the most enjoyable. So that's YouTube and Daily Mentor. Um, That being said, I think... The uni is going into this really interesting territory um, where maybe the wearable blanket category isn't like what it used to be, but at the same time, all of our other product categories are scaling really nicely. So it's kind of like, are we actually going to be, you know, the next Peter Alexander? Can we be this brand that, you know, we've worked so hard to do um, that's almost been shadowed by, uh, like our aggressive scaling through COVID, all of this kind of stuff. So I think that that's really perking my interest again. But at the same time, um, I'm really like, it's it's if you chatted to someone that that I'm mentoring at the moment, like they you would find out that like I'm so into it. Like I just love it. It's it, you know we've I increased this guy's conversion rate by thirty percent the other day by just making one intro for, for this speed optimization. Like just these small things, and these these guys they they're great guys, and it's going to change their life. Like just giving these small little tips, and it's going to stop them hating business because they have all of these mistakes that I've made. So yeah, I'm really into it at the moment. I kind of feel like you were born to teach. I mean, one of your, one of your ethoses was the fact of, you know, from day one, you said you'd never do a course, you know, that, that was one of your ethoses way back from when we first did the podcast and, you know, to see, to see how you're actually giving your one-to-one time with groups of people now and seeing, you know, and these people, these people are doing well by, by all accounts, you know, doing millions online, but you know, a 30% increase on millions online, you know, you're talking three, 400 grand in, in your, in your, in your backend money because you, because of just one little, what you, people are, people are so often one degree away, aren't they from, from success, but they don't, they just can't see what they can't see because they're, they're so close to it. What, what is a good way for entrepreneurs that are in the pursuit of this, this greatness, they're doing certain numbers online and what's the best way you've found by, 
to to absolutely take yourself out and look at it from a different perspective? Yeah, I think there's lots of different strategies. You've got self-reflection, which the information that you're using to create uh, to create new angles and learnings is purely internal and you're just trying to find different white things within your conscious mind or even like pulling from your subconscious mind through meditation to create those new angles. Um, and sometimes that is just getting visibility on things as well, like writing things out, getting people to write reports, and then you can start spotting these things and making these neural connections. The other thing is external feedback. And I think this is underappreciated. And if I went to any of my mentors, I could phrase my questions so that I get the exact answer that I want from these people. You know, like, should we expand to, I don't know, UAE or something like that? I could phrase it exactly right to get that answer because I want to do it. It's, I think you really need to find these mentors and find a mechanism to get really unbiased feedback because they, they need all of the information without any prompting or, or creative language. So I think the best way to do that is to come to like a community or if you do have a mentor uh, or you do go to a mastermind or something like this, you know, just phrasing it like this is what I, this is one option. This is another option. This is all the data behind it. And then also just finding people that have walked the exact path that you're trying to walk, the exact path, because trust me, it will exist. That may be hard to find, but they will respect you if you're close to them. Um, and then just asking them what, what they think in that, in that exact same way. Um, and yeah, that's, that's really how it, someone's walked the path for you. There's no point you trying to be a pioneer. Pioneers get arrows in their asses, like really be, uh, really try to understand, uh, someone that's walked it before you. I think, I think there's, there's two things I have to say to that, uh, that, that I've personally struggled with along, along that path, that exact path that you're talking about. It's like, I had to overcome a lot of ego within myself to be able to even ask certain people certain questions because I think that was one of the things that I, I faced and I know a lot of people may face that I think that's that's somewhere you have to be radically honest with yourself and just say you know am I not asking these people the questions because of my ego is attached to this you know you have to lose that and it's just like you know is seeing see for argument's sake seeing what you've done with your YouTube channel and the way you've grown to 340k now in in a, in a, in a short space of time I presume then that you've you've gone and got outside optics from it from someone that's trodden that path before and that's and that is is that the reason between your rapid growth obviously the content's great but to to learn to put the right thesis around that content did did you pull in outside eyes i think there's two things there first of all hiring someone that has walked the path before you is the easiest way to grow your business so you're struggling with operations and forecasting for an e-commerce business, you're now trying to get to $10 million from $1 million. Hire, some, hire an operations manager from an e-commerce brand that has just achieved that. Use LinkedIn, write a list of the e-commerce brands, go into LinkedIn Recruiter, start a free trial, DM them, say, hey, can I get your co- have coffee? I just want to chat about business. Pitch them on the vision and just hire them. And they will come in there and they have already made all of those mistakes and then they will uh, put that in there. And that's exactly what kind of I approached with YouTube. Hired a videographer from Melbourne. He already had his own YouTube channel. It was based in Sri Lanka. So his revenue 
for his YouTube wasn't great, but at the same time, his uh, you know content and his growth was amazing. So very fortunate enough to get him. He taught me you know the baseline. Now I'm you know working with someone that's worked with uh, a YouTube that's got 10 million followers because that's where I'm trying to get to now. I'm trying to get to that million, 10 million. Um, so learning all the frameworks there. So yeah, I think that's firstly important. The second one, and I'm, I'm going to give Alex Mosey credit for this uh, because he talked about it in one of his speeches. My YouTube grows quicker than other people, despite my content not being as good as theirs, because I've done something. So if you want a big YouTube, chances are you probably need to stop doing YouTube for two years and actually go accomplish something worth speaking about. And that gives you the authority and makes people trust you so that your content uh, gets more traction and, and converts better. So they're probably the two main reasons. I completely understand what you're saying because at the end of the day, like with what you've done, when you've got, you know, when you can say that you've done 500 million in e-commerce sales and when you can like, when you can say like Cormosi can say, and obviously I know both of you, it's like when you, when you can say you've done a hundred, you've got a hundred million or you didn't probably near on 2 million, 200 million in portfolio value. That those taglines that you, you introduce every video with, just just cements your credibility in it and people and 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 it and it really does cut through the generic how-to videos on youtube from people that really haven't even done what they're talking about how to so it's like you know you, you cut you cut through the nonsense that way um but if but if see there could be people out here though davey that are trying to build that may not have may not have that and they're sat on that fence now are you really telling those people to 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 quit and to go away and app and absolutely do it, or is there is there another route that you'd perhaps offer as an alternative? I think there's always edge cases. I think that I think primarily, I think it is important if you're teaching something both ethically and efficiently, like you should be probably quite accomplished in that category. Where things are a bit more ambiguous, such as maybe focused or productivity, those kind of things, maybe you don't need to do that. But the one thing I will say is don't try to beat Ali Abdul. Like you've got to be unique. Um, so if you can create something brand unique that you actually do have authority into it where there is no yardstick to measure success, then, uh, yeah, I, I think that's okay. But just be unique about it. Well, I think one of the things that Hormozzi also said was when he reframed it from, from how you to how I, when, when, you, when you use a how I statement, how I scaled my e-commerce business to 20 grand a month, no one can argue with the fact that I've done that because I've done that, right? Whereas if you say how you and you're, and you're projecting onto the world, you're, you're basically now talking from, from external things, trying to pull external variables, right? Yeah, and I don't think you need to build a $200 million portfolio or do $500 million in e-commerce sales. Like there's there's a lot of lessons and learnings just getting it to 10K a month. And you can then frame your content around that for beginners uh, being quite appropriate where you currently are at. I, a lot of those people could speak about the beginnings of dropshipping far better than me and would be more of an authority if, if that's what they want to achieve, 10 grand a month. Um, 20 grand a month but uh, you know if you want to build a big brand or you know learn probably more about e-commerce and dropshipping maybe I'm the better source for it but yeah my, my point is not to say like 
put your head down for the next five years. Don't let me hear about you until you've started the next hoodie. <laughs> it's just at least do something so that you're credible, you know? Yeah, no, no. I just wanted to clarify, <laughs> clarify that because there's a lot of people in their car on the way to work and they just, they've just had their souls taken by you. You know what I mean? Because if you, if you take it the wrong way, you can get, you can get in your head about it. But obviously look, we, we, since, since our, our last time, AI has absolutely come and captivated everything now. Every startup's got AI in it. AI as a technology, we're on ChatGPT4 now, soon going to be five. Everything's moving at the, at the, at the speed of light now in terms of uh, the spaces. I'm sure that you've probably maybe cut employment in certain companies in certain areas because you've replaced certain things with AI. How are you using AI in your e-commerce brands to not only better produce what you're producing but also are you using it to to lessen the amount of staff that you've got or how are you applying it to your business yeah we haven't cut staff based on ai and we haven't widely adopted it that much simply because it is still too early i feel um you know i've got some people that are running ai customer service but with the udi you know, Gorgeous was already populating a large amount of the macros and guessing the macros for it. It's where the edge cases are for, uh, that, that, that take a lot of the time for customer service. So it, it's using external information, let's say Royal Mail tracking, something, it said that it's delivered, it's not actually delivered, those kind of things. And we need to follow up with Royal Mail, figure out what actually happened, get the photo from that. AI is not there yet. And it needs these external data sources to be compl- like to be agreeable to what the AI is trying to achieve there, um, so that these agents can then fish that out. Then, when we go onto the creativity from where well, we might use it as like in the example before, where we're trying to come up with shark woody ideas, you know, using Mid Journey shark designs, uh, using Pixar characters, and just trying to envision that. But even then, I don't think that we would be close to using those patterns. They're just not. They're not just not good enough. They're not. There's not enough continuity across the 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 designs. So, you know, it's so close. I think uh, I know a lot of our copywriters are using it to get over creative copywriting block. I think our videographers are now starting to adapt it more widely in terms of coming up with creative and fun angles. Um, I've had a play with using Zapier flows to create content at mass scale as well. Uh, so for example, creating a brief for a video ad, creating a Zapier account, what I did was what you'd do is you'd put the link of the product, you'd put the target audience, let's say grandma, uh, grandmas, and then AFL, which is basically our f- football. You, you know that, but yeah, a, lot of, a lot of people the, don't. The poms, a lot of the poms might not. Um, and then basically saying like create a brief for grandmas for AFL uh is and it would just spit out the creative brief a video brief for Facebook and you could just create 500 briefs in five seconds for that so I played with Zapier flows around that whether they outperformed they, they weren't that great um in terms of performance so there's a lot to learn I think what I'm really excited about is when the learning when these models can be trained better based on the personal experience and plugging into the, 
just grabbing the FAQs and the previous customer service tickets for these brands and then that, that's just not quite enough yet. It just, it just isn't working. It isn't getting personalized enough. Grabbing all my YouTube transcripts and putting that through and trying to write tweets, it's just not there yet. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited about it, but I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be hiring staff aggressively, but at the same time, I, I don't see that I can replace my staff through, through AI, nor maybe I don't want to, because it may just become to the utilization of these tools and there's still going to have to be someone driving it. Um, I think where, where it affects things is the depth of org structure. So if we've got a video editor, we might not need five video editors, but we're definitely going to need one video editor. So it, it might not necessarily mean a reduction in types of roles, but at the same time, a reduction in the volume of those roles for larger organizations. And do you think then that people are trying to implement this stuff too quick and they're, and they're kind of killing their own growth with, with implementing like new shiny object syndrome? Probably a lot of people are, but at the same time, I don't want people to not try to innovate things. You know, if you find a, a one brand, I know just get rid of 90% of that customer service and they're a two person business and wow. they managed to implement this and a lot, but a lot of that, they didn't have a lot of the other optimizations that we already had for those kind of tickets. So, you know, I, I don't want people to stop innovating with it, but where we're currently at as an organization where one small efficiency in a Facebook ad where we spend a million dollars is worth a person looking at it versus someone that's trying to find their footing and they're a one person shop and they're trying to just scale up the brand. It's a very different, uh, very different situation. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with you. It's like, you know, you have to know where you are and according to the situation you are, you're in. I think, I think, resonates with me what you said earlier when it comes to like looking at um when, when it comes to people creating content and if there's someone out there creating how they scale to 50k and there's someone like you how you scale to multiple millions it's like sometimes the person that's that scaled to the 50k might you know if, if i haven't if i'm if i'm at 10k it might be worth me watching their content rather than consuming yours mm -hmm. until i got to the point where i'm i'm ready to and, and understand enough because i've got to that level mm. I think, yeah i think that's where I a lot of it's falling down yeah. So the, and the reason for that is because time shifts our perspective so much in both forgetting things, basic things, but also maybe we, it's exact, what, exactly the same as what we just talked about where AI might not be great for me, but it might be perfect for that person because they understand the challenge. Like I am approaching it from a different uh, a different mental state than, than them with different lessons. And you'll see this very prevalent in when a entrepreneurial company hires a gray haired executive that was worked at a billion dollar company versus, and then trying to implement those things at a $50 million company. It's like you managed 500 people. How are you struggling to manage 10 now? And it's because they're approaching things, they're approaching things that are going to be an issue later on, but there's, you need to get your hands dirty in these companies early on. You need to do diff different things to get to that point where that becomes a problem. So, yeah. How are you running your organizational structure? Is it, is it quite of a, a flat organizational structure because of the stage you're at in the, in, in the, in the Davy group? Or have you, have you got CEOs of every brand now? 
Yeah, I've got CEOs of every brand um, and they run the org structure how they want to run the org structure. Uh, obviously, there's only certain, you know, I think we've got like 50 employers or something. So there's only a certain degree of flatness that you can achieve with that. Otherwise, someone's going to have way too many direct reports. Um, but yeah, uh, everyone's kind of got a, a, their own CEO. Those CEOs kind of report in to me through uh, certain meeting cadences or, you know, when they kind of need me because of an issue. And how did you know it was the right time for you to step back as CEOs of these brands and put other people in? How, how, did, how did you feel that out? I did it way too late, especially for Udi. Um, it was probably, you know, Udi was doing 160 million or something that year. And I was spending like four hours being CEO on it. And I, I realized uh, a friend told me, that you're doing this business a disservice. You're going to kill it by being CEO here. So I, I was also over it. I was so sad. I just wasn't a happy person because I was doing things that I didn't want to do. Um, and, yeah, so as soon as I stepped out, I was I was a much happier person. Whether that was the, the, the commercial, right commercial, was like my CEO, she's incredible. Uh, I think... I think there's plenty, been plenty of lessons in, in stepping out. And I've, you know, I was not a good CEO simply because I didn't care how people's day were. I didn't, I was just purely based on performance. You know, a CEO needs to actually lead um, and lead by example. And I was doing four hours a week. How's that leading by example? So I wasn't, I wasn't a good CEO in those regards. And, and by stepping out and seeing how someone else would run it was an extreme point of learning. And it allowed me to, now have an exact example to, well, somewhat exact example to kind of model if I was to ever do it in the future. So yeah, I wish I, I wish I did it sooner. Your trajectory inside four or five years dramatically turned around your life and there must be more to it than just hard work, the right product. There's something I'm not understanding myself even like, you know, how what tools and, and mindset shifts had to happen for you to be able to conceptualize and see the level that you've taken things to in such a short period of time? Because people think five years is long, David, but five years is such a short period of time. When I started this podcast, I already had, you know, I've got to be in this for 10 years to achieve anywhere close to what I think I can achieve in this game. Like you've achieved it in four or five, like, and you've done hundreds of millions. Like what, what things did you have to realize and you've realized them quick? I think, there's a huge amount of luck involved and you know you said that there's a bit more than the right product and hard work I disagree I, I, I genuinely think that if you work hard and you never give up and you put yourselves in situations where you can get lucky through say a great product you can achieve incredible things and you know people either give up too early or they apply the mentality that there is something unique about me to as an excuse and a crux to not achieve it. And it's okay if you don't achieve 500 million. It goes to what we're saying. Like achieve a $10 million a year brand uh, by getting lucky with a product and working your ass off for five years. That's going to change your life forever. So there's two camps. There's people that haven't started because they apply they say that I'm, you know, something unique or get discouraged on a daily basis and they've started and they're doing quite well and they're like, oh, I'm not at Davies level. 
or I'm not achieving days. And I do this to people that I respect. And that comparison is the theft of joy. And by doing that, you're not focusing on things that matter, such as staying in the game, working really hard, staying positive about it and keep trying to get lucky um, while minimizing the bullshit that comes along with it. So I don't think that there is anything different. Um, and I think that anyone can achieve what I've achieved. There's a, there's a few things. I mean, what kind of stage were you at monet- monetary wise in dollar amount when you kind of realized that just chasing the dollar amount wasn't going to bring you any more joy? Obviously, you still wanted to grow the businesses. I understand that. That's business. But at what kind of level was it when you said, you know what, any more dollars in the bank account right now is not really going to make that much difference? I go through waves and waves, the waves come stem from desire. So I find like, I want to buy a beach house, you know, I want this beach house. Oh, this one doesn't have a pool, like blah, blah, blah. Like people are going to hate me for kind of saying this, but it's like, no, I want one actually on the beach. So I need an extra 5 million there and stuff like that. As soon as I get in that trap, I'm straight back to where I was five years ago, just constantly chasing, thinking I'm not good enough, like working my ass off, sacrificing my happiness now for a materialistic possession in the future that I, I, I don't actually care about. You know, you buy a nice car, within a year you're going to be over it, no matter, it could be a million-dollar car. Um, you can be a massive car nut, but you're not. that dopamine is going to f- fade about that car. So I think as soon as you realise that and all of your you know, basic ha- Maslow hierarchy of needs, you know, physical needs, safety, those kind of things are met, as soon as you realise that, you can be happy. Easier said than done. People love to comment. I saw this video the other day of this viral billionaire and he, the person asked the same question similar to you. It was just like, what was it like to become a billionaire? And he was like, it was euphoric. It was the best feeling ever. I was completely safe, all of this kind of stuff. And all the comments were like, finally, finally someone admits what it is like. And I'm like, no, finally someone admits what you think that it feels like. You're using confirmation bias to finally approve this. But if you listen to what he was saying, he was like, I am finally safe. So he was putting himself in an extreme situation where he was not safe on a daily basis because he was probably leveraged. He could probably lose it all tomorrow. He was probably getting sued and his physical health was declining. So if you really think about what being a billionaire was for him, which was probably a huge exit, was that now those external threats were gone. And that is the threat of loss. So if I go, you know, look at Udi, like can it all flip tomorrow and I could have sold for a hundred million, all of those kind of things, that fear of loss creates extreme angst in me and unhappiness. But if I sold, that would go away. But you don't actually technically need to sell to get that. You just need to come to the acceptance that it could happen, that the social implications of that you will be okay with that the status will like you're not defined by status you're not defined by these physical things and as soon as you can achieve that you know you can be happy at any level um but as i said you know you do still need those physical things yeah i went to the doctor the other day 300 dollars. i was like this doesn't affect me but i so appreciate that certain people that would affect them and it would cause them issues and they would have to maybe not go out for dinner with their partner because of that. So I really appreciate that. And that's why I think 
my mission is to really create, get people out of this rat race as well through free information. You know, we talk about mentorship, but all of my stuff for these people, completely free. Don't buy a course, just go watch YouTube, those kind of things. And that can get out of the rat race and create enough financial freedom for people. And once you've achieved that, then it's a mental game about just acceptance and, and finding peace. Yeah, I love, I love that, acceptance and finding peace. I mean, it's so easily said, isn't it? It's, it's something that I think we all have to... I think we all have to come to an agreement by sitting in front of a journal sometimes and just saying, okay, what is my number? What, what do I actually want to achieve out of my life? I've, I've heard you talk about this before. It's like getting straight with yourself and, and honest with yourself about what you love and what you don't love and, and, you know, and how you want to turn up and how you want your day to look and everything else. And you kind of reverse engineer it from there. Is it something you still actively do even when you get to the level where you don't really have to you know, bother anymore? I think it's more important when you get to the point because we we have created, you know, making your your first million is is harder than making you know ten million after that, and that's because we create these habits and this knowledge base that we get addicted to these dopamine hits of achievement, and pausing that hamster wheel of dopamine of achievement and trying to find something that is contrary to what we have always believed is very, very difficult. So it takes more reflection and it takes more reflection before you do some serious mental damage, um, but which a lot of people do, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, the, the drug addiction and CEOs, suicide rates are, are astronomical. So, I think, yeah, it's, it's more important and more difficult. So constantly reflecting, journaling, uh, you know, I've got a psychologist, I've got a coach, I've got a hypno coach, like all of these people help unwind a lot of the bullshit that a lot of people praise me for. But at the same time, as I said, it's very hard to convince someone what, what we're talking about here without them actually achieving it. You know, Naval said it, money doesn't make you happy, but nobody's going to believe it. So at least, is paraphrasing, but at least you let, let's get everyone rich so that they can realise it for themselves pretty much. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, that there's a lot of truth in that. I think getting to, this, I, I think getting to the point where you realise that money's not your ultimate allows you mm -hmm. to learn so much more about yourself than perhaps you, you knew before. Like, for me, when I got to the mm -hmm. point where I'm like, okay, you know, I own property outright, I've got this, I've got that, I've put that there, I've put that there, blah, blah, blah. When I got to that point, I was like, "Wow, I've got some trauma I need to deal with." Like, you know what I mean? Like, I've got some into, and I went on this breathwork journey and, and experienced mushrooms, and I, and you know, I started to pull these coaches into my life, and I'm like, "Right, I need to, I need to understand this. Why, why am I so angry in this element of my life? You know, what, why am I always attracting this certain type of woman because of this unresolved issue?" And it's like I started to find out all these issues that where the pursuit of just the pursuit of money and the pursuit of this Australian dream that I had was, was just covering up all this other stuff and just, and you, you only ever push it down and like a plumber pushing down, you know, bad plumbing in the toilet. It's all, all the shit comes to the surface some way. So what I tell people, and I don't know if you tell people this too, David, it's like, you know, yes, pursue money because we, we're living in an economic world, but whilst you're pursuing it, if you can get these kind of coaches, your breath work, your, your mindset, your, 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 like you've had a hypnotherapy coach, if you can pull them in along your journey, it actually makes the pursuit of that thing that you think is the thing 
better for you as whilst you're going along the journey as well? I think there's a few things there. When we look back on a lot of these moments that were so probably stressful in the time and launching a business is kind of like this. We look back and we go, God, that was an amazing time. And while we're in it, we're kind of like, oh, this is a subpar time. This is not not great. Like I'm a bit stressed, those kind of things. And it's because we're looking back on these things and only appreciating what truly matters. We're getting rid of all the bullshit, that bad morning, the fact my coffee didn't taste good, all of that kind of stuff doesn't stick with us. So it's about remembering the true things that matter. And I think if you can look at things through that framework, you know, it's just such a powerful, powerful thing because chances are you will look through the most stressful times of business as the best moments ever. I, I loved everything about the Udi, but if you asked me on a given day, I probably would have been pulling my hair out. So just enjoy and be present and enjoy the moment. Who did you have to become to be able to step on Shark Tank? Like what, what really mm. had to change for you to be able to do that? Because, you know, looking at how far you've come and who you were when you turned up to this podcast two and a half years ago to now, there's a lot of things that have had to change for you to be able to make that step. Part of it is... Uh, caring less what people think about me. If you if you asked anyone two and a half years ago, does Davey care what people think about him? They would have said no, no way. But I obviously did. I couldn't stand up on stage. I couldn't talk to anyone. Like I, I would be so anxious, all of those kind of things. So that was all rooted from the need for perfection. I think I'm getting better at accepting my imperfections. I think I am caring less what... I think I'm caring less about status, physical goods, and care and focusing far more outwards. You know, I, I genuinely care about these people and Australian entrepreneurs. I genuinely enjoy and appreciate the opportunities that Shark Tank gave me and, and the other judges and how much care they put into teaching me things about their business. And I think by focusing outwards and less inwards was probably the most impactful thing. Yeah, sure, like the diet, these kind of other things, you know, mind uh, practicing, telling stories, all of these kind of other things. They're, they're very they're hacks and tricks. But as you put it, you do need to constantly evolve. When people are like, oh, wow, he's changed. He's changed for the worse, those kind of things. It's like, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Like I would hate to, you know, change both for your benefit, your benefit to say that I've changed for the better or not change at all. Like that is a joke. So never be ashamed of changing. Um, what your values of good and bad are uh, is totally subjective. Um, all you need to be approaching things are in is a framework of helpful and unhelpful. Does this serve me or does this not serve me? Um, I feel very lucky that my frameworks around that is, you know, focusing outwards makes me really happy and helping other people makes me happy. So it's not a completely selfless approach uh, and uh, that, that then serves me. So that, that's kind of my mental state at the moment. I think, it, I think it's great how you're honest about, you know, it needs to also serve you at a certain level for it to be something that you can do for a long time. 
It's like with this podcast, I, I love it. I love the art of podcasting. I love traveling the world doing it. It lights me up. Um, it serves me that I like to serve the audience with, with the content, with the questions that I think that, that need to be answered. But, I, but selfishly on a personal level, it's like, you know, I like sitting down for an hour and a half of you, Davey, and talking about all the things that you're doing and some of the insights that you give. I, 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 from a selfish point of view, I, I love doing that. So it's like, you know, exactly. when, you, when, you, when you're radically honest with yourself like that and you understand, okay, why I'm doing it and why I'm doing it for other people, when you get close, it allows you to get closer to your actual true North Star of who the fuck you are and fully encapsulate it and own it so that when people say stuff about you, which, which as you go through life and as you get on TV, people are going to start throwing mud at you. You can kind of not let as much stick because you realize, look, you need polarity in order to get to the level that you've got to in life. You cannot get to 500 million without getting hate in sales. You cannot go on TV without someone saying something about your hair or about your skin or about you wearing that suit. Did you see what Davey was wearing last night? It's all that, all that kind of crap that it's great. Yeah. It's a great it's suit. Good. It's a great suit. <laughs> you, you understand what I'm saying though? It's like pe- 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 yeah, yeah. Pe- this is where people get wrapped up. You got to pick, pick the lane that you want. Pick the lane and the destination you want to get to, and, and understand. In the order to get there, you're going to get a hell of a lot of shit thrown at you because people support you, especially in Australia. People support you to a certain point, and then as soon as you start to become successful, they hate you. Like it's just, mm. it's just a natural, it's just a natural thing that I found there. And um, you know, I, I just appreciate your time here and your honesty in in, in delving in delving into all that. If there was one piece of wisdom that you've learned in the last two and a half years, because we've already covered this on the first podcast, that you could just drop on this audience today that's going to take every member of this audience that 1% further in their life and they can implement it today. What would that wisdom be from you? I think my advice is always different. You know, you try to try to tailor it for, for who you're speaking to. But I think, you know, I heard this, this quote the other day, but courage is not the absence of fear, but the ability to act despite it. Just the courage that it takes to launch a business, to put yourself out there, to upload a YouTube video is the most important element because without the courage, you won't get the action. And without the action, you just won't get the information. So that's probably my main thing. The thing you're sitting on don't wait until you're not busy because you're always going to be busy in your life. You need to make sure that it fits in and just get started and, and create that information. I love that, mate. And I, and I really appreciate your time coming on here today and dropping your knowledge. And I just want to say from me to you, mate, that what I've seen you achieve in the last two and a half years since, since we first obviously met on here has been nothing short of fantastic, mate. And I've, I've loved every minute of watching you succeed because I know the world's abundant for everybody anyway. So I love, I love to see that. And guys, do me a solid favour. I've tried to keep this podcast today with Davey, high level, high level tactical insights, different things that I thought would add value to you and where you're at right now. Um, and I, you know, if you want to listen to Davey's journey and everything else, that's, that's more so on the other podcast. I'll link that in the show notes, but uh, I appreciate your time guys. Listen, like, listen, share and subscribe on all the channels and much love. Thank you, Davey. Guys, do me a solid favor. Drop a comment below this video and let us know who you want on the podcast next.